Hello everybody, Raul Gomez here. This episode was recorded on the day of a major earthquake in Mexico, and as a result, my co-host, Carlos Miguel Prieto, had to step out to tend to family and friends affected by it. Fortunately, everybody was okay. Now, what that means is that today, it will be just me. Welcome to Soundpost, a podcast dedicated to exploring the meaning of concert music in today's world through conversations with its leading artists. I am Raul Gomez, and our guest today is French concert violinist Alexandra Sum. Sasha, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. So, you are in Paris, France, and you have been there since March. Yes. You normally travel all over the world for performances, but of course, we cannot travel right now. So, how has this time been for you? It's like a sudden stop to everything. <laughs> It was insane. My generation, I think we know that we will live through not easy things. I was more expecting more of a war. <laughs> and also, I was not expecting all of this to happen so soon. Because I'm like 31 and I thought I will live something like this much later. So, when it all happened, it was a shock for everyone, of course. And I have to say, I'm really lucky because I was home with my partner, who is a professor of philosophy. So, <laughs> it's never boring with him. And you can talk about many, many things. And I spent a lot of time reading and writing and studying scores. And didn't practice that much, I have to say. Like in the beginning and at the end, I practiced a lot. And in between, it was like this kind of a gap for many artists, I think. Was it a difficult transition for you to go from such a busy schedule to suddenly being home a lot? Or was it refreshing in a way? It was refreshing. I've been traveling for the last 15 years really a lot and I've never had like over two weeks or something, three weeks at home. And it was just so good to be home and cook. And it was very strange. Some days were so long, like it was a very different sense of time. I was really, really happy to experience a life-changing moment that might never happen again and see how you feel about it. So I didn't go against it. I really, I did a lot of yoga, I meditated and I tried to see what time could be. It was really good. When things go back to, let's say, normal after the pandemic ends, what will you bring with you mm. into you know, normal life from this time that we're going through? What I've learned during this time is just confirmations of things I knew before, that, but that I really lived fully. So, for example, one of the things I missed the most was to do music with people. It was not so much being myself on stage, but the, <laughs> just the fact to rehearse the whole process of creating music. I miss that actually much more than to give it to people. Of course, I miss the audience, I miss the traveling and I miss getting to know many new musicians and wonderful people and being inspired. But somehow the rehearsals were what I missed the most. I knew that before, but then I really lived it. And also the other thing was that I do a lot of charity work. I play a lot for homeless people and people in hospitals at the end of their life, even one-on-one -on -one sometimes. And I was not allowed to do that, obviously, to go in the hospitals. And that was actually hard because I wanted to help and I was not allowed to. So that even confirmed that I want to do even more when we're back to, to the norm. And where did that come from in your case? Way before any of this stuff happened, you were already using music to have a positive effect on people. So when do you feel like you started to move in that direction from, let's say, just playing music on stage? Mm -hmm. I think it didn't happen overnight. <laughs> It was a long process. 
around 2009, I would say that I started to have a feeling I was performing mostly the same kind of audience. And I started to ask myself questions like, who am I playing for? Where are the other people? Where are the homeless people? Where are the kids? Where are the elderly? Where are the disabled? And I started to call different structures and to go play for them. And then I met two wonderful women that became my co-founders of the Esperance Arts Foundation that we created in 2012. And today we are over 150 artists who are all you know, volunteers and we perform over 30 times a year uh, in different structures in France. So, I mean, it's a balance. I'm so happy to travel and to work with amazing people and orchestras and to play repertoire, but I could never go back to just do that. Once you've helped and played for people who really have nothing but what you give them, like when they hear Mozart or whatever, even modern music, we play modern music for them as well, or baroque music or everything, jazz, when they hear that for the first time in their life, like the emotion is so raw, it's so honest that somehow I couldn't live without it anymore. It's became such a big part of my life. It's like my baby. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know more about Speranza Arts, but before let me share with you just a very short story that's uh, very relevant to what you're sharing here. This was a couple of years ago, actually summertime, and I live in Portland, Oregon. I work with young musicians and we had an international tour plan and we decided to do a little fundraising by going and playing out on the street, a little busking. So I put together, you know, uh, several string quartets with students and I was playing with them. So we're playing on the street in Portland downtown and nearby where we were playing, there was a, a group of people that most likely homeless, just kind of hanging out at their usual spot. And we were playing music, you know, and we're, we're not thinking too much about them. People are walking by and giving money. And then all of a sudden, one of the people from the group comes towards us in between pieces. And he looks at me because I'm the adult. And he asks, do you guys know Toreador from Carmen? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, we probably don't have an arrangement here, but I can just kind of play it for you. So I played a little bit and, and he was just happy and then he went back oh, so wow. that was like you're saying wow. we we play for our audiences and we're very appreciative of our audiences but there's a lot more people out there who generally don't have access to this so how has Esperance Arts helped artists move in that direction what's the concept behind the foundation so our idea was to bring together two worlds that usually never meet so the world of high artistry and a really high level so we have not only classical musicians but we have world music musicians jazz we have dancers we have theater actors we have photographers the other world is just the world of uh, hospital prisons homelessness it just never meets anywhere it's impossible and i think it's important especially nowadays where we're always with uh, people that have the same opinions as us and it's very comfortable and all these algorithms always put it like we ha only have access to people who think like us and i think that's very very dangerous so the idea was to not only share our passion and talent of these wonderful musicians but to give also some dignity to the people that we play for mm. them because they they think why are you coming to us they we are not your type of audience and we tell them that's not true we we don't care you deserve the same emotion you deserve the same education as everyone else and it's just about what you feel in a concert hall it doesn't matter if you understand schoenberg or whatever like if, if you feel something and if you play for somebody it's like you talk to them and sometimes when people talk you also don't understand it doesn't matter sometimes you feel so our concept is to build really strong relationships with the structures that we're coming to play in 
so it's not only one time and then we never come back. <laughs> we come back to the same places over and over for years. And for homeless people, we play every single month since now five years. So they've heard a lot of different music. <laughs> and it's, I think, you know, to answer you, the musicians after these concerts, they say that they've never experienced something like this. And some pianist once told us that he played some Beethoven sonata like for the hundredth time, but he never played it this way because mm. there were, people had no idea there. So yeah. like he could not, think about you know styling or he just played how he felt so he was in a way very very free and he said that was actually how I always wanted to play so it is not true that the environment doesn't matter it really matters it changes the way you play and is this work happening in Paris only or in other places as well so we work in the Paris and suburbs of Paris And we've had a couple of external projects, like we've been to Cambodia. We played there for 2,000 kids who were blind and, and deaf Whoa. and disabled. Yeah, that was amazing. That was really amazing. Such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, we had even one of our musicians, a vibraphonist, vibraphon player. He played there with percussionist who was blind and they improvised together. And that was just insane. It was one of the most moving moments of my life. Mm. And And also two years ago, I went to Kenya. I played there, I taught there. It was really wonderful. I brought strings and instruments and even a trumpet. And <laughs> it, was, it was really great. But most of our work is based in Paris because we want to have a sustainable yes. work. Whatever we do, we want to build roots wherever we go. And relationships. So all these artists, right? They're creating mm -hmm. relationships at all of these different places as they present their music. Exactly. Now, I would love to travel back in time here for a moment mm -hmm. and let, let's go back to your beginnings in music mm -hmm. okay I, i want to know about how you got started as a young girl but especially i want to talk about your time with boris kushner in, yeah. in vienna sure. so let's go way back <laughs> travel in time Well, I was born in Moscow in a family of musicians. My mom is a pianist and my father is a violinist and he was my first teacher. And so then we moved to, to France, to the south of France, because my father was playing in the orchestra of Yuri Bashmet, the soloists of Moscow. So the entire orchestra immigrated in 91 and I started the violin with him and well, that was it. <laughs> we just worked and worked and worked a lot. I was a wonderful, very harsh, wonderful training that I've had with my dad who taught me absolutely everything and who taught me the most important thing, which was to stay curious. I had to listen to one hour of music every single day with a score. It could be ballet, opera, quartet, anything, even not necessarily classical, but... Like with full, full scores? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. he was a very curious man who, uh, even though he lived in Russia where, you know, Baroque music was not really the, the styling that's not how they did it there he was very very curious he loved Arnon Kur, Bruggen so I was super lucky that he also taught me how wide the, all the styles could yeah. be and then when I was nine I played for Boris Kushner for the very first time I auditioned for him and uh, he took me under his wing and I've studied with him for yeah well I could say 15 years yeah That has been truly amazing to have such a mentor, uh, almost like a second father and someone who works also on your psychology, not only, of course, I mean, I had a wonderful base thanks to my dad and we worked a lot on, on nerves. We worked on, yeah, just the, all the emotional side and then the analytical side, obviously, when you're nine, you don't 
analyze that much what you're playing yeah. but he made me do it and I I mean it, sometimes we worked on one concerto for three years so it's like analyzing every note what was his style of teaching with you like in lessons does he have you just play 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 and then you talk or is it like you work on two bars for <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah, that was the case for a long time. So it depended on what was needed. Uh, if I, we had the time, then we worked on sometimes two bars for one hour. And also, I could have a lesson at any time of day or night. I mean, I always had to be ready. You know, I could have lessons at twelve or seven in the morning. And like with my dad, like my dad woke me even in, in the night, and I was supposed to be ready any time, which helped me when I traveled to Japan or somewhere else. Because then I'm. <laughs> Even if I'm jet lagged, I still have to be able to play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I said, the training was quite hard, but it all it all helped. <laughs> I made good use of it, and so his style was very, very calm. Because I'm quite an emotional person, so I think he always just tried to calm me down and kind of put the energy where it had to go, not just everywhere and like explode like a volcano, but kind of just build an architecture the phrasing and he's a master of details so the little finger here and then this half an inch of the bow there and it's just like an architect of the whole piece it was wonderful and then we when the piece was kind of built then we would record it on camera i would run things through we would watch it on camera at night and then redo everything from scratch <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that like for many years that was amazing like the process with him is that there's no end yeah. there's just no end so. One of my favorite things about your playing is that when I hear you play, I can hear you. I hear your voice, your artistic voice and the way you play and your sound and your phrasing, exactly what you're mm -hmm. talking about, the architecture. You played Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with the Orchestra of the Americas on tour. And, you know, you perform this in Estonia, Latvia and Norway. And mm -hmm. each time, of course, it's you playing. The concerto tells a story and it's it's not always the same Thank you. so when you were studying the Kushner and artistic growth when did you start to feel like you started to find that voice like your voice because when you're little a lot of it is imitation and repetition mm -hmm. but do you remember like a time when you felt like oh this is me these are my artistic decisions hmm that's a very good and complex question <laughs> I think around the age of 15, even before, actually, actually, your question is really good. I think I started to find my inner voice when I started to disagree. Okay. So my artistic decisions were usually based on not being <laughs> convinced by what I was told to do. So it's not like I really, really wanted, I knew like, oh, this is exactly what I want, but I knew what I didn't want. And going backwards, yeah. so I think that's how it all started when I started to really have fights with my father and even with Kushnir, sometimes we really disagreed really strongly, but that was wonderful because he told me years later, he said, you know, you were one of the only ones who actually really disagreed and sometimes I wanted just to kick you out of the class. <laughs> but but because you, you asked me why, I always kept asking why and there needed to be an argumentation. And for me, I was very lucky to be taught this way that even though my voice is very important, it's the voice of the composer which matters. It goes through me, but the respect for the score, for the time period, for the styling. I'm a messenger of this piece. 
So I think even when we disagreed with Kushnir, he still wanted me to be super convincing. Like he said, I don't agree with what you do, but it's logical. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like phrasing, it's always have to be logical and convincing and, and in a way natural. If you just do whatever you feel without any argumentation, any logic, it doesn't work. So I think he was a very open teacher with me. I don't know so much with others, but with me, he, he was very open with me disagreeing. And even though sometimes I arrived where he wanted me to arrive, but I just made a kind of a curve. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. I think that's the mark of a great teacher also, you know, you're you're being guided to yeah. go through the journey yourself to make these discoveries, which maybe like you're saying, all along was what your teacher was trying to tell you. Exactly. Sometimes you you realize they were right all along, but you just needed more time. And the funny thing is they always want you to take the shortcut, but it's just not possible. Like if you go in the forest the, the walk is what matters. It's not to go just through the entire forest and go out of it as soon as possible. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time. He supported me so much. Also, he's just such a good friend. I know I can call him any time. Still now we're very close. And I think that's, uh, yeah, it's just I'm very lucky to have found a wonderful teacher, a wonderful man. In your teaching, because you work with young musicians, yes? Yes. Do you find yourself repeating things that your teacher told you? Or do you find that your style of teaching has been shaped in any way by him and your father? I, for sure. It's very hard to disconnect totally from what you've learned, even though I'm trying to just take only the good. <laughs> I think I'm using more humor than my two Russian teachers. <laughs> okay. And also I'm trying to always ask my students, what do you want to express? I can try to help you technically and guide you through that, but I'm not going to tell you what you have to do at every step because it's in the score and the score knows better than me. So I'm all about trying to work on self-consciousness like the really the consciousness of what you're doing, consciousness of the score. And I don't let my students watch YouTube if they learn a new piece. Yeah, which is for me, it's like right now it's the worst thing you, you, you could do. You try to learn a piece. The first thing you do, you go online and you, you watch the first recording that comes. And sometimes it's a good one, sometimes it's a bad one. <laughs> but I'm against that. I'm Use the score. That's your media. Then you... Later, when you worked on it, you can go listen, but be very, very, I'm very careful with that. Not because I don't like the way people play, <laughs> but just because young people right now imitate a lot and don't have their own self-criticism and just self-thought. Like, I think that's just so important. So I think that's what I do a little bit differently, but for sure, I'm, I'm asking a lot of them. <laughs> that was my, the case for me. Yeah, I don't I don't know. You should ask them that this question. I think I was also very inspired by Pamela Frank, with whom I worked uh, quite a lot at the Seiji Ozawa uh, Academy uh, for string quartet, an academy that I went to for 12 years in a row. We had the lessons with Pam Frank and with um, Sadao Harada and uh, Nobuko Imai and of course Seiji. And that's an academy that taught me a lot and the way Pamela Frank teaches is just incredible and I think she's a very enthusiastic woman, very positive and she just loves music. When she teaches a piece that she's been teaching for like 30 years, she's so amazed and I think that's what young people like. I don't know how, how you feel if you work with young people, but sometimes they're like, yeah, whatever, major to minor, no big deal. It's huge! Like, <laughs> they, they don't see the... Sometimes they don't see 
anymore and how amazing and joyful and they just read the notes that's how i feel yeah and i think it's really cool to know that as a teacher you can help young people find the magic in a moment like that going from a major key to a minor key and to help them open their eyes to all the meaning and the emotion that's behind something seemingly simple as what you were describing I, th that's very rewarding mm -hmm. now let me ask you this you're still very young <laughs> you already are a very accomplished performer do you ever go back and listen to recordings of yourself from say 10 years ago and do you like what you hear do you think you've evolved and grown not too much but sometimes i come across uh, something and i'm very intrigued because i usually remember quite well how i felt at a certain concert and if i have a video recording of that i can almost go back in time and match what i hear with how i felt at that moment oh okay yeah and even if sometimes i'm not as convinced or i think i could do better now of course you can always do better i usually feel that i've been honest at that moment in time and i think that's very important so even though something might not have worked out exactly the way i wanted it to be uh, i'm someone who takes a lot of risks in the concert i'm like no risk no fun <laughs> what kind of risks well you know if i play with orchestra i really believe it's like chamber music so i always tell the especially the winds i always tell them please suggest things on stage like do a line i'll follow you please change like of course follow the conductor mm. <laughs> as well but you know let's do music together so sometimes i would just change a little bit what we did on the in the rehearsal and for me it's all about like what happens in this second so trying to create duets and dialogues between different instruments and Some musicians are very surprised by that, but I feel that's the only way I can do music. Sure. Know? You're keeping the uh, conductors on their toes also. Absolutely. Always. <laughs> there's nothing worse than just playing again and again the same piece over without even ever questioning what you did. In the rehearsals, I'm, I usually... You can ask Carlos, he'll tell you. I always tell him, if there's something you don't like, just tell me. I love criticism. I'm happy to evolve and maybe I was wrong all these years. I'm happy to continue the journey. I'm really curious about what you said. You can generally remember how you felt in your emotions for a particular performance. So let's, let's dig a little deeper here in that particular subject. So you play all over the world. So first of all, concert halls. They're all different in many ways. Architecture, feel, temperature. Do you have any favorite concert halls that you've played in or that you play in regularly? You know, there are so many beautiful places that I've played in. I was very lucky. Um, of course, in Japan, some halls are just insane. The acoustic, you just play one note and you don't have to do anything. Like the hall helps you. It's with you. But if the hall can be the best and the audience is not connected to you then it doesn't really matter it's all about the connection to the people and sometimes i prefer smaller concert halls with a special atmosphere for example when we played in new orleans with carlos that was the audience was so warm and it was it was a little bit dry acoustic but it was beautiful but the audience they had so much empathy and they had so much kindness and they really wanted us to do well and when that happens it just helps you one of my favorite concert halls well of course musikverein in vienna also the paris philharmonie 
The new hole we have here is absolutely gorgeous. It's huge, but it's gorgeous. It's just beautiful to play in, in there. And I love churches. Those can be challenging yeah. spaces to play in. It can. If it's a small church and the acoustic is fine, then I think for a certain type of music as well, maybe not for everything, <laughs> maybe not for Sibelius concerto, yeah. <laughs> but sometimes it's just uh, where even more magic happens. When you, you go to rehearsals at the venue, you're playing with the orchestra, you get to know the, the acoustic, you get to know the feel but then here comes the first concert and you're backstage in your concert gown just ready to come out you walk over to the center of the stage so will you describe that moment for you and what what's going through your mind what are you looking for listening to or trying to feel mm. those reconnaissance moments in, in a way exactly. right exactly I mean, that's a very complex question. I don't really know what's going on in my brain. I think they should do experiments with us, like put them <laughs> stuff on our head and see what happens in, the, in our brain, because I'm sure there are lots of different things happening. So the first thing I'll tell you is that the worst moment for me is behind the stage, is the waiting. I'm a very impatient person, so the waiting for me is like a, a trauma every time. <laughs> I hate to wait. I just want to go. I would describe it as, I mean, I've never done, you know, paragliding with a parachute or what you know like uh like, like almost flying yeah exactly when you're flying yeah in the mountains so it's like you wait you wait you wait and then when you go on stage you jump but it's so liberating and then you mm. you're just in your element i always feel like the audience is just there to have a good time we're all there just to have a great evening all of us mm. it doesn't matter if someone messes up or something yeah we're there all to have a good time so i'm trying to go on stage and think I'm going to try and really give my best for the piece and to be really aware of the orchestra. I'm very, very connected to them. I'm trying to be, at least. <laughs> and especially it was the case with the orchestra, of course, of the Americas that was insane. I mean, it was like such a connection and everywhere. everybody just wants the best for each other. People always talk about the passion of these young people, of these young musicians, but I, I think that their empathy and their kindness is what moved me the most in our in on our tour i was so moved by that and just that that everyone wanted me to do well and that's mm. exactly what we need so i think i'm i'm trying to let go and be concentrated and yeah, it's hard to say some concerts you are more nervous than others <laughs> it really depends how do nerves manifest for you if and when you are nervous uh, so I'm usually nervous when my parents are in the hall uh, or someone that I really love. Yeah, so yeah. for me, it definitely doesn't have nothing to do with the amount of people. For example, if I was very lucky to perform twice at the Hollywood Bowl for 20,000 people. And that was less scary for me than sometimes when you play for like 50 people and your teacher is there or your family is there and you don't want to disappoint. Sure. So that's the main thing. And I can be very nervous before the concert, but when someone stays, well, I mean, what happened when I was younger was that I started to play very, very fast on stage. <laughs> very, very, very fast. And like, I, rem I know that my father, when I was like 10 years old, he was like, oh my God, how can you even finish this piece? It was, it was quite scary. But then, and I didn't realize at that time when I was playing that it was fast, you know, like, because it's just a nurse. After a lot, a lot of work on that, I realized that the time on stage is very different than the rehearsal time. <laughs> So just trying to enjoy every note and and have a story of the piece in my head. Like I always imagine 
memories or literature or a painting or something and it's really like I've said when you play you you say something you describe something and music has a lot to do with language I think it's very important to keep that in mind when you perform yeah and I think that's all great advice for young musicians and, and for any of us who get up on stage for a living to perform I'm curious about your work with contemporary composers because I, I know you've had music written for you and you mm-hmm. like this type of work so will you share with us some of this work that you've done well I was very lucky happy to work with the Austrian composer Christoph Ehrenfellner whom I met in Vienna during my studies he was in the conducting class and I always came to listen to all of them not to be a conductor myself but just to watch and observe how they learn and we became friends Christoph always knew my love for poetry and especially for a Russian poetess Marina Tsvetaeva which he discovered and I actually asked him to compose a, a string quartet that he did and which we premiered during the Seiji Ozawa Academy maybe seven years or eight years ago and it was a wonderful experience because he came, he worked with us and the quartet, I described him exactly all the people who would be in the quartet. So he wrote the voices for nice. all of us. Thinking of the personality and sound. It's a custom made. Absolutely custom made, beautiful one long movement, like one poem, absolutely gorgeous piece. And then a few years later, he composed his second violin concerto for me and we played it together, he conducted it. I asked, can you compose a modern Brahms concerto? Brahms is one of my favorite composers, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a challenge. It was. So he took a few motives from Brahms and turned them upside down. The recording is on YouTube, actually, and it's a very beautiful and very lyrical piece full of challenges. And what I've loved is to to play it with him. That's what a, what a joy to play with a composer who writes something for you and who can tell you exactly how he sees it and you can suggest things and he sometimes readjusts something. And yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And also I've worked with Eric Tanguy, but on the very different project I wrote some poetry some years ago and posted it online without mentioning it was me and he liked it he liked the piece and he said who wrote it I said well I wrote it and he said can I compose a piece for soprano and piano based on your words and it was very 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 moving so yeah we did the premiere a couple of years ago and it was really moving to hear my own words it was beautiful we were supposed to do actually the orchestra premiere of that piece just uh, during the confinement but of course it was Cancelled. You mean a, a version for soprano orchestra? Yeah. Oh. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But so you you write poetry. So is this something you've done for some time, or did you one day were you inspired and wrote this one poem? Uh, well, a man left me. It's very very classic story. <laughs> and start and I wrote this poem, and then I continued to write poetry for a couple of couple of years. And it was I mean I I, I still recite a lot of poetry, but I don't write anymore. I guess because I'm in a happy sure. place right now. <laughs> (laughs) So I write less than I used to, but I still write for myself. Well, that's so cool to hear your words set to music and perform. Did the music add any levels of meaning or how did it change the poem? Well, you know, I, when I heard the piece for the first time, I was so surprised because in my head, of course, it sounded very differently, but I'm not a composer, so I wouldn't be able to describe how I was hearing it. But it was very, very moving. And the great thing was 
that the composer was super open to work with me on what which words were really important, which words were really powerful or painful, and he was composing larger intervals for these words, and we worked with the singer together as well, and it was wonderful to see how just the end of the love story can turn into a beautiful piece and be continued, you know, that's a real catharsis. You just put everything in the art, and the art becomes the prolongement. How is this word in English? You just the continuation of life. Wow. What does the future hold for Alexandra Soum? What's the next frontier for you, Sasha? Well, right now, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Because, of course, everything is on hold, so we need to be patient. And meanwhile, do other things. So I've started to write a podcast where I'm linking music with literature, poetry and philosophy, taking like one theme, one subject, and sharing with the audience some of my favorite poetry, some of my favorite music, which is connected to this theme. So the first podcast, it's in French, unfortunately, but the first podcast will be online on Saturday. Saturday. Oh, exciting. Okay. Yeah, this Saturday it will be on all podcast platforms. And the first theme that I've chosen is tomorrow. So, yeah, very accurate for today's time we live in. So, it's a lot of research that I'm doing, historical work. And many of my friends who are literature and philosophy professors are helping me to make it all beautiful and choose the right text. And then I'm going to teach this summer in a few academies and a few festivals actually are going to happen in France this summer. So it's not all totally over. And I really hope I can come back to the US. We are supposed to go on tour next February with Carlos for a whole month through all of the US. So I really, really hope that happens. And I was already supposed to come to Mexico in May and I hope we can postpone that. I miss the traveling. So I really hope that it can start somehow as soon as possible. And sharing sharing music i think maybe we need to rethink also how we do music maybe it has to be more locally maybe i don't know i think we should use today's situation to be more honest also about our world and about the classical world and try to see how we can change what needed to be changed anyway even before this whole thing happened because yeah. it was far from being perfect so just going back to how it was is not well and i think that you are inspired by your music and by your artistry and in addition to that the curiosity that you have learned from your parents and your teacher i'm thankful that we have artists like you helping to lead this transition into whatever it is we're gonna be faced with next and finally so a bit of a weird question i see a poster behind you of oh yeah we're, we're having this conversation over video conference so will you describe that poster and what meaning does it have for you yes well i'm in my room in paris right now in the kind of corner of my boyfriend who is a teacher of philosophy so there are lots of books everywhere <laughs> And next to these books, I have a poster of Martin Luther King, which I have since over 10 years in my room. And Gandhi is also not so far on the other side of the wall. And I really love this picture of Martin Luther King giving an interview. So, well, there are microphones next to him. And I just love this picture so much. I can't even describe the emotion, especially with everything which is going on right now. Uh, He has been such a huge figure in my life. I've worked with the Sphinx Foundation in Detroit for many, many years, and I support their work and I support, you know, as much diversity as possible in the audience as much as on stage for classical music. And I think we really need and miss a man like him right now during these times. Yeah. 
Sasha, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Thank you so much. I hope that we will be able to see you in person here on this, this side of the world. But in the meantime, thank you for all the work that you're doing and just keep up inspiring all of us. Thank you so much for your time. And I really hope to see everyone very soon again from the Orchestra of the Makers. I miss yes. everyone and I hope we all meet again very soon. Soundpost is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org forward slash soundpost to learn more.